0: Uh, by the way, didn't they do an amazing job up here? That, that was my son on the drums, by the way. <clears throat> Last week, we finished the longest book in the whole Bible. And it was the book of Jeremiah. And uh, tonight, we get to start the second book that Jeremiah wrote, the book of Lamentations. But I don't want to start with the first verse. I want to start at the end of the book of Lamentation. and there's a... A reason why, because the book of Lamentations gets its name on purpose. You may have come here tonight not knowing why you're here. You may have come after a long, hard day. You may have come after, you know, maybe some problems in your life or hard times or just things that aren't going right. I'm here to tell you that you're on the perfect night to be here. Because the book of Lamentations puts things in perspective. It puts our lives in perspective it puts um, our perspective in perspective uh, lamentations chapter 5 verse 19 it says this you O lord remain forever your throne from generation to generation and so father tonight as we approach this amazing uh, book a lot shorter than the, the book of Jeremiah but but just as powerful, just as poignant to today. This book that uh, describes the heart of a godly man who is, is suffering because of the sin of the nation, and the nation that he was called to preach to and be an example to, and yet they um, disowned him, didn't listen to him, uh, even abused him, Lord. Uh, tortured him, put him in prison, as we're going to see tonight in in a, a deep pit. And yet he still loved those people, and yet he still was faithful to you, and yet he still reached out to them with your calling. Because he knows, and he does know, and we do know, as we read tonight, where you are right now. You're still on the throne. And Lord, when the problems overwhelm us, when, when the, the heartache, the things that we may feel like uh, no one else has ever gone through in our n- entire life or in this world, and we feel overwhelmed with the uh, hurt and pain, Lord, help us to remember where you are, that you're still on the throne, that your son came to this earth and experienced more than any of us ever will, so that we could have someone to go to in our time of need. Your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, uh, amen and amen. Uh, Lamentations is one of those books in the Bible that um, it's part of the poetry section it's part of the, the songs, if you will. it's part of the, the Psalms and the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and then the Book of Lamentations makes up the last of the uh, poetry books in the Bible. In fact you look at the you know the way that this book is written, it is written in a poetic form. Uh, The whole font, the whole the way that it is uh, transcribed into our Bibles is in a poetic uh, form. It is divided evenly amongst all uh, the chapters. In fact, look at chapter one. How many verses are in chapter one? How many verses are in chapter one? Say it louder. Twenty-two. You guys don't have microphones. I can't hear you. (laughs) How many verses are in chapter two? How many verses are in chapter four? How many verses are in chapter five? (laughs) Twenty-two. I know. I looked. (laughs) How How many verses are in chapter three? A division of 22, by the way. Whenever you see 22 verses in a chapter or in a a group of uh, verses that are divisible uh, by 22. For instance, Psalms 119, which has 176 uh, verses, it is divisible by 22. 8 times 22 goes into 176. Uh, you, you can be guaranteed that that's what's called an acrostic. It's an alphabetic acrostic. It is a Hebrew alphabetic acrostic. And it's meant as a memory device. You see, when uh, Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, he was in a place where there was no uh, pencils or pens or paper. He composed the book of Lamentations in one of the worst places you could ever compose poetry. He composed it in a pit. In fact, we we get the setting for the book of Lamentations in chapter 3, verse 52 to 57 there. We get the setting. We get the place where he's at. We get it, what, what it was like to be Jeremiah as he's writing this saddest of all books. Verse 52 there it says, My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit. They threw stones at me. This is literal, by the way. This isn't figurative, this is literal. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. Where is Jeremiah as he's composing the book of Lamentations? In a pit. We read about this when we went through chapter 28 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Where, where literally he is sinking into this waste pit. And that's a you know G version of where he's at. It's a toilet. And he's sinking down into this pit up to his waist and waste. Where, where literally his skin is being slowly eaten away by the acidic compounds of the urine. And he's composing this book of Lamentations. And in order to do it, he's doing it in such a way where he's doing it alphabetically. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, Vav. Every single one of the verses starts with a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Much like if you were here with us about a year and a half ago when we went through Psalms 119. Where every eight verses starts with a sequential letter. Uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all declaring the word of God, by the way. So as you read through the book of Lamentations, it's meant to be a mnemonic device or a a memory aid for the Hebrew uh, reader. It starts out like this in Lamentation chapter 1, verse 1, and put yourself in the situation of Jeremiah where he's in this pit. Looking up to God, describing what is happening not only to him, but to the city uh, where he lives as well. How lonely sits the city that was full of people, how like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princes among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. What is it it like to be an Israelite during this time? This once great city that was the pinnacle of all nations during the time of David and Solomon... Its walls now torn down, its temple destroyed, as we read in the last chapter of Jeremiah last week. All those beautiful utensils that were made of solid gold and silver by King Solomon have now been carted away to Babylon to be used in their parties and in their debaucheries. It continues on the description. And by the way, uh, if you were to try to compose a poem in a pit, would it have anything to do with anybody else? Or would it have everything to do with you? You see, all of us are selfish people. All all of us are, you know, even, even me. You may not believe it, but even me, ask my wife, are selfish people. And who do we think of when we go through a problem? Ourselves. That's who we think of. Unless we don't like the person that's causing the problem. But you understand we always think of ourselves first. Jeremiah, as he's composing this amazing, poetic book of lamentations, is thinking not of himself, but of the city that he loves. Jerusalem. In fact, in verse three, it says, Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. You see, three times, as we read in the last chapter of Jeremiah, and if you weren't here last week, you can always watch the previous uh, week's episode. Uh, but, or you can just read it for yourself, which is also good. The, there was three times when Babylon came, and they took away people in, in three different shifts. Uh, these people were taken away into Babylon. Various groups. First, those that were, you know, handsome and smart, and, and could learn a different language. People like, you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Shadrach, or, uh, Meshach, and Abednego. And then you had the second group of people like Ezekiel who was taken away to the river Kibar. These would have been the um, uh, blue-collar workers, the ones that had a skill. And then the third group, the group that Jeremiah is with, are the riffraff, the poor, uh, by default, the ugly. The ones that are left in the city that are taken to Babylon. Verse 4, it continues with the description, not of Jeremiah, but of the city. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy, why why is Judah, Jerusalem being judged by God? It says it right there because of their transgressions, their sins, their iniquity. And and this isn't just a a one-time thing. Oh, you did something bad. Now God's going to judge you. No, this has happened over hundreds and hundreds of years. This has been tens and tens of prophets that have come to them and said, Repent of your sins or else the wrath of God is coming. And they kept doing what they wanted to do. And finally, Jeremiah is here as a record, as an eyewitness record, by the way, of what is happening behind the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 6, From the daughter of Zion all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer. They find no pasture that flee without strength before the pursuer. Do you see the picture? Do you see the poetry? Do you see the way it flows off of the tongue? The amazing way that Jeremiah is pinning this poetry in order to get us to see what it was like. To watch the princes run away in fear. When instead they should have been there fighting. Or verse 7. In the days of her affliction and roaming. Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things. That she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy. With no one to help her. The adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore she has become a vile. All who honored her despise. Her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turn away. But by the way, in the the original language you see um, the, the picture here in in a um, <clears throat> a very mature rating. Uh, what, what, is, what is the description here, especially in this verse and then the next verse, verse nine here. Of what it was like for a nation, especially Jerusalem, the chosen people of God, uh, to be caught in their sin. Verse 9 pictures it perfectly. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold, my affliction for the enemy is... Exalted. The nation of Israel has been brought down low, humiliated because of their sin. And what have the surrounding nations done? We won. We finally got them. We humiliated the people of God. Just like reading today's latest blog. Just like the news today. Exactly. What happens when... A Christian falls. The world rejoices. Verse 10. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. Do you understand the gravity of this verse? By by the way, each and every single verse culminating in chapter 3 is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, by the way. First, the description of the nakedness of Jerusalem as they have exposed their sin literally to the world. And now people that were not supposed to go into the holy place or the holy of holies are entering those sacred places. You see, the Holy of Holies was designed only to be entered once a year by one person, the high priest, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And now who's entering there willy-nilly, just going in, taking whatever they want and leaving? It's the Babylonians. It's the enemies. It's the ones who scorn, as it says here in verse 11, scorn The name of the Lord. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. The tone now changes, it becomes personal. The the description of what Jeremiah is going through as he's uh, lamenting the people of God, as he's lamenting the people in Jerusalem, is just overwhelming. When we first started the book of Jeremiah, we made a distinction between lamentation or a lament and a person who is depressed. Depressed. Or um, self-centered or weeping for themselves. You see, when I'm depressed, who do I think of? Just like, you know, when I go through a problem, I think of myself. I get depressed. I think of, oh, woe is me. Everything is going bad with with me. All, All my problems are overwhelming me. I wish someone would think of me, right? But a lament is different. A a lament is others focused. You see, Jeremiah is focused on uh, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah. He's lamenting them and their sins. He's concerned for them and what they're going through. Rather than himself as he's sinking down into waste, up to his waist. As literally the urine is peeling away the outer skin of his feet and legs and thighs. Yes, you can see it. You can smell it probably even. You might even feel it. Verse 13, look at what it's like to be Jeremiah. From above, he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to. To withstand the Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. What has happened to all the youth in Jerusalem? It's been sucked dry. It's been trampled on. It's been destroyed even. The future of Jerusalem has been taken away. The future of Jerusalem has been uh, destroyed. The future of Jerusalem has been walked on by their enemies. Verse 16, for these things I weep. And this, by the way, is Jeremiah. Who is he weeping for? The future of Jerusalem. My eye, my eye overflows with water. Because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. There's an interesting word there right in the middle of that verse. I love it. It's the word comforter. It's where we get the the New Testament term for the Holy Spirit or the Parakletos, The one who's the comforter. Uh, The the one who comes beside you in your time of need. When you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, who comes into your life as a seal? It's the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And so at any time we have access to the God the Father, we have access to the very throne room of God uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as he intercedes for us with moans and groans too deep for words. The Comforter. What has happened to the spirit of God in Jerusalem? It's gone. In fact, when we get to the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see the spirit of God depart the temple before it's torn down by the Babylonians. Where, where, where the, the spirit of God, the one that was supposed to be here as a representative for the nation of Israel between the people and God, he's going to leave which is scary, by the way. The, the temple that was supposed to be the meeting place between God and man here on this earth is now going to be torn down. And for 70 years, the people of Israel will not have a place to go to to worship God. This this is unfathomable to us as Christians because we understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Can can he ever, you know, leave us or or in some way, you know, forsake us? No. We know that we have access to the very throne room of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But for the people of Israel as they're going through the destruction of the temple... The spirit has left. The comforter has left. Jeremiah, he's crying out. So much so that it says there at the end of verse 16, my children are desolate. What has happened to the future of Israel? Verse 17, Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me, my priests and my elders. Be, breathe their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. And if you were with us when we were going through the book of Jeremiah, you remember the, the horrific things that were happening behind uh, the city walls as the Babylonians had surrounded uh, Jerusalem. Famine, drought, and disease where literally uh, women were having to eat their own children beyond horrific because of the starvation that was going on. It was the tactic Babylonians knew would demoralize the people behind the city walls. In fact, what was happening to the elders as they breathed their last behind the city walls, they're starving to death. They sought food to restore their life. Of course, they didn't find any. Verse 20, it gets worse, by the way. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me. For I have been very rebellious outside the sword, bereaved. At home, it is like death. Again, those poetic words describing the, the dirt and the grime and the blood and everything that's going on in this poetic language. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me. For all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is uh, faint. This acrostic, this uh, Hebrew alphabetic acrostic that Jeremiah is composing, is meant uh, to be uh, remembered. It is meant to be. Uh, memorized, if you will, have you ever tried to, you know, as you read through the Bible, maybe choose a, a verse, maybe it's from a proverb or a Psalm or, or something like that. You put it on your refrigerator, right? <clears throat> How many of you have ever chosen a verse from, you know, chapter one of Lamentations? Or chapter two of Lamentations. Yeah, I bet you've chosen one from chapter three. We'll we'll get there in a little bit. Thank God that there's hope in the book of Lamentations. Or chapter four, chapter five. These are not refrigerator verses. These are verses uh, that are meant to make you feel the pain uh, that is happening at the time of this uh, writing. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter thirty-eight, we we see the picture of what did this is like, and 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 it just so happened that when we read this chapter, it was the Wednesday before Easter, and none of the sound worked, and and they didn't record anything, and you know it was just Jason in the back, and he was you know trying to make everything work, and it was hard, you know, and 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 because they were doing things for the the Easter service, and. And so you get to kind of get a, a preview of that, uh, Jeremiah chapter 38. This, this is where Jeremiah is composing the book of Lamentations, by the way. Look at the setting here. Then Zedekiah the king said, look, he is in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the dungeon of Melchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire. And again, that's a G version. So Jeremiah sank into the mire. Do you see the picture? As he's slowly sinking down in this gross gunk. Being slowly enveloped by the waste. The, the latrine pit, if you will, where they threw all their waste. Because remember, Babylonians have surrounded the city. Where do you put your waste? This pit, as he's sinking down into it, look at what it says in verse 7. Then Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house. By the way, not even an Israelite, a foreigner notices this. Who was in the king's house after several weeks, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. And when the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech, this Ethiopian, went out of the king's house, spoke to the king, saying, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they cast into the dungeon. And he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is for there is no more bread in the city forgotten in a pit and this is where he is composing the book of lamentations verse 10 it describes and and again picture this how hard it is to take him out of this sinking pit Verse 10 there, the king commanded Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, take from here 30 men with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Abed-Melech took the men with him, went into the house of the king under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags. And let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then eben Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. How are they having to drag him out of this pit? With these 30 men, by the way. He can't just hold on. He'll rip the skin off his hands. He's, he's embedded in this you know, gunk and mire. This waste. He has to literally uh, loop the rope around him. Put the clothes between him and the rope. As 30 men drag him up out of this pit. This is where Jeremiah is at. And every time you read in the New Testament. By the way when Jesus says they tortured the prophets. They killed the prophets. This is one of those examples where Jeremiah is in a pit because of the truth that he has spoken to the people that he loves, the people of Jerusalem, as they are surrounded by Babylon, about ready to be destroyed, the walls torn down, the temple dismantled for anything that is of worth. Verse 13, so they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes, lifted him out of the dungeon Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. He's not even allowed to leave the prison. At least he's taken up out of the pit. By the way, what does he smell like? Won't even go there. Lamentations chapter 2, it continues on. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger again a lament who is jeremiah crying out for the people of jerusalem the the others not himself the others The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. All those ballistas, all those catapults, all those towers, all those fortresses that would have surrounded Jerusalem are being torn down to reinforce the walls of Jerusalem as Babylon is surrounding them. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has is drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around the protecting hand. The hedge of thorns that God had placed around the city of Jerusalem is being taken away by God himself. Why? 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 Because of his enemies. Because of the sin of his people. And by the way, because God loves his people enough to discipline them. Will he forsake them completely? You see, it's Jeremiah that's going to predict that in 70 years they're going to come back, that this isn't going to be forever. This isn't going to be a, a, you know, a a situation where God's going to completely forsake Israel and then choose another nation. No, God's going to discipline his people for a certain period of time. So when they come back in 70 years, the first thing they're going to want to do is worship God, build a temple. Where when you read in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the first thing they want to do is just build a worship place to worship God. To be able to come before the God of the universe who chose them. Verse 4, standing like an enemy has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who are pleasing in to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds. And he has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feast and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion in his burning indignation he has spurned the king and the priest the lord has spurned his altar he has abandoned his sanctuary he has given up the walls of his pal- of her palaces in the hand of the enemy they have made a noise in the house of the lord as in the day of a set feast do you see what is happening You see, when we get depressed, or we have problems, or we um, go through hard times, a lot of the time what we do is we, we, we look at our, ourselves, we look at our, our own problems, and we see how big they are. And in many ways, in many of our, our situations, when we, when we see our, our problems, they overwhelm us so much so that uh, it obscures anything else. It obscures... You know, our families, it obscures our God, it obscures the people that are in our life. And we get introverted and we look in on ourselves and we get depressed and we think, no one else has gone through the hardships that I have gone through. No one else can relate to me. When you read the book of Lamentations, it puts our own lives in perspective. You see, our problems become a lot tinier when you're in a pit where there's an army surrounding your nation, where people are starving in the streets, people are are dying of of drought and malnutrition and disease. But that is minuscule compared to what Jesus Christ did for us. Our our problems are small compared to what Jeremiah's problems are. And Jeremiah's problems were minuscule compared to what God went through on the cross. Where Jesus Christ went through the worst of anything. And who was he thinking of the whole time? I love that. By the way, I mean, I don't know if you've ever um, read in the New Testament. I, I love Matthew chapter 16 there. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 14, it says this. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do man say that I am? The Son of Man am. Who that I, the son of man, am. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, what's that name? Or one of the prophets. Why why did they compare Jesus to Jeremiah? Not Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or Micah or Habakkuk or something like that. Why, Why did they compare Jesus to Jeremiah? You see, Jesus had a heart for the people that he loved. He had a heart for those that he served. He had a heart for not only his disciples, but he had a heart for the people of Israel. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 41, we see exactly the heart of Jesus Christ. And what he does over the city of Jerusalem as he's entering in for the very last time, knowing that those people are going to crucify him, what does he do? In verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. This is Jesus saying, if you had known, even you... Especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. If you knew who I was as your Messiah, the one who's going to lay down his life for you. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. What? This is exactly a a mirror of what happened during the time of Jeremiah where the Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem. Now in 70 AD, just about 40 years after Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross, what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem again? Not by the Babylonians this time, but by the Romans. Where they will literally tear down Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Where, where they will sacrifice a pig on the altar, to defile it. Where they will cart away anything of value. Where they will literally melt the you know the the gold and the silver where it will go into between the rocks, so that they will have to literally pry apart the rocks in prediction of prophecy to get out those precious metals. Whereas Jesus said, no stone will be left one upon the other. So that they can pry off all the valuable gold and silver that is melted between uh, the rocks. Or in verse 44, and it continues on. And level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And who is Jesus thinking of as he goes to the cross? The people in Jerusalem. The people of Israel. And by the way, you and me as well. Thank God for that. In Lamentations chapter 2, we, we continue on there. Verse 8, the Lord has proposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision for from the Lord. What is it like to be blind to the word of God? And again, this is what is happening in uh, Jerusalem at this time where literally for 70 years there's going to be a period where they will not have the temple to ask God questions. I I, want to challenge you tonight when you go to bed and you ask God those questions that are in your mind. Thank God we have that opportunity every single day. Lord, what about this? What is your direction for my life? What is your will for my life? Help me in this situation. We can just ask God anytime, anywhere. Thank God for that. Because when Jeremiah is writing this, what is it like when God is not there anymore? When the temple has been destroyed, the prophets are blind the priests no longer get a vision from God. What is that like? You understand that after 70 years, they're going to be desirous to hear from God again. By the way, this is going to happen again during the time of Malachi too. When Malachi says that there's going to be a, a period of time, there's going to be what looks called the 400 years of silence between the end of Malachi and the beginning when Jesus Christ comes to this earth. And the people are going to be longing for a word from God. They're going to be longing for a a true prophet of God to speak to them. And then who just happens to come on the scene? John the Baptist. Preparing, making straight the way of the Lord. That's another uh, sermon all together Verse 10 The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. They keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and they gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgin of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets. Of the city, what is Jeremiah doing? Where literally he's so thirsty, he's run out of uh, tears, his heart is broken, and it is all that he can do to muster up the little bit of bile that's left in his intestine or in his stomach. Do you see the description? They say to their mothers, Where is the grain and the wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. To be a mother that watches your child die on your lap. This is what it is like to be behind the walls of the Jerusalem at this time. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you? That I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and they shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? By the way, this is where I ask you and remind you of the very first verse that we read Where is God? We we always seem to ask that question when there's problems in our life. When things aren't going well. Where's God? Where's God? What's the first verse we read? Where's God? He's on the throne. He's on the throne. Is God still in control? Is he still going to keep his hand around them even in a foreign country? Is he still going to place people in key positions within the Babylonian government like Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Misael or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is he still going to place people in specific positions along the the common people on the River Kibar, men like Ezekiel, he's still going to speak to them in a foreign country. Where is God? He's still on the throne. And by the way, the answer is still the same today. God is still on the throne. God will always be on the throne. God will always be in control. Now, ask that question after the next verse, verse 16. All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth. They say, We have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it as the enemies rejoice. Where is God? Is he still on the throne? When the Babylonians have torn down the walls and the temple, is he still on the throne? Yes, he is. Is he still on the throne during the problems of our own life? Yes, he is. You see, God has always been, is now, and always will be on the throne. He will always be sovereign. He will always be in control. He will always be in charge. The answer is always the same. Where is God? He's on the throne. In fact, it sums it up there in verse 17. He has done what he has proposed. Is God still in charge when all these problems are going on? Yes, he is. He has fulfilled his word. There it is. Which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and is not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. That's harsh, God. That's mean. You're just a a mean old guy up in heaven that's waiting to uh, tear us a new one. Or to hurt us. Where's where's the love of God? Where's the comfort of God? It's coming. In fact, it's going to be right in the middle of the book. It's going to be those verses that you've chosen probably out of this whole book. Put them right there on your mirror refrigerator. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses are new. His mercies never fail. For he is a great and faithful God. Don't skip ahead though. Because the bright light in the middle of the book, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, gets brighter as these verses get darker and darker and darker. By the way, And the immensity of who God is overshadows the problems. And the problems get smaller as we see God on the throne. And the problems get minuscule as we see God high and lifted up. Almighty God, holy, 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 the one who's in control. Because he still has everything in his hand. We'll finish this chapter here. Verse 18. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise. Arise. Cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. And the question again is, where is God? It gets harder, by the way, when it's your kids. Everyone that's in a parent in here understands that. It's a lot harder. Don't you care, God? Where's God? On the throne. See, O Lord, and consider to whom have you done this? Should the women, and I always hate reading this verse, should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and the prophet be slain? In the sanctuary of the Lord. Where is God? As his priests are being killed in the temple. Where where is God? When the prophets are being put down into a pit. Where, Where is God? When those that have. You know been righteous. And loved God with all their hearts. As they're going through the same exact. Drought famine disease. As everybody else behind the city walls. Where is God? Is God still in control? Gets quicker here. The last two verses. Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins, my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited as to a feast day. The terrors that surround me in the day of the Lord's anger. There is no refuge Or survivor, those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed the slain laying there with no one to bury them because they're all too weak. It's hard to read. It's hard to teach. This isn't the first time I've taught this book. I, I used to travel around and and do um, uh, filling in for pastors up in Attachapi and and Fraser Park, uh, Wofford Heights, uh, other uh, churches in this town. And this was always the um, most requested sermon, the book of Lamentations. You know why? Because everybody goes through problems. When we read the problems of Jeremiah, our problems look a little bit smaller. Because guess what? Jeremiah is going to find hope. And I hope you can come back next week. Because you're going to see the hope. How can God provide hope in the worst time in the history of Israel? How can he provide hope? Because it's the answer to the question, where is God? He's on the throne. He's on the throne. He's still in control. He's still in charge. And I hope that literally overwhelms your souls tonight. I hope that's a comfort to you. <clears throat> because again, what did God do for us? He sent us his son to die for us. The the plan of salvation before even the beginning of time, when God knew that we would sin and be in need of a Savior. And it wouldn't just be a physical death behind a wall. It wouldn't even be just the devastation of of having your child killed or people dying all around you. It's worse. It's being sent to hell for eternity. Jesus Christ gave us a hope that goes beyond anything in this world where we can have that assurance, by the way, that comfort, as we read about here, of knowing uh, that we can enjoy fellowship with God forever and ever and ever and ever. And all the problems on this world, all the problems that we experience in this life, guess what will happen to them? Gone. Why? Because God's still on the throne. And God's still in charge. And God's still in control. And so, Father, uh, tonight, as we uh, conclude this amazing uh, couple of chapters here, help us not to leave this building the same way we entered in. That that we wouldn't be selfish as we came in. Uh, That we wouldn't be... um, brokenhearted as when we came in, that we wouldn't be even depressed as when we came in, that our, that our problems would be laid at your feet, that, that our, our, the, the things that are going on in our lives that are overwhelming would be laid down at the feet of the one who is greater than all problems and hardships. And the things that we experience in this world, where we can run to you and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you comfort us. And thank you so much for your Holy Spirit, who is that guarantee, who is that assurance, who is that comforter in our lives even now, that we don't have to go through the um, separation that the people of Israel had to go through before your second or before you came here to this earth. Lord, I thank you so much that we have the privilege of reading this book and hopefully maybe even being tempted to read the rest of the book tonight, that we would read chapter three before we go to bed and and read about the hope that is to come. And Lord, when those problems in our own life overwhelm us, Lord, help us to remember what you did for us how you went through even, even greater torment than Jeremiah did than the people of Israel at this time, that how you went through an even a greater um, a trials and tribulations for us. And the whole time on that cross, you were thinking of us, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for that. We thank you for that. And so, Lord, tonight as our tradition is, I ask you bless these, my friends and my family, that you would bless them mightily, Lord, that the things that they are going through, that they would lay at your feet, they would know beyond a shadow of doubt, that you take care of them, that you're still on the throne, that you're still in control, that you're still sovereign. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.